For December 28th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 652. Escalators. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than uh, when we are watching the latest action blockbuster, and even happier when uh, it is streamed directly into our homes, and happier still when we can uh, get together and talk about it together. But, uh, but lend me your ears. We come to bury WW84. Not to praise. <laughs> no, it's got good things. Some, some of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's true. It has awesome, like Mad Max makeup on Kristen Wiig. All right, let's uh, let's jump in. I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with uh, my good friends from the from the 1980s, from the actual 1980s. Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Uh, Reagan eighty four. Oh, he's not in this movie. How strange! <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about Wonder Woman. Quick before we do, two little things to point out. One is that we have begun publishing the uh, reviews that were supported by the donors to the Holiday Movie Challenge twenty twenty. Thanks uh, again for the last time, I suppose, to them. Um, and uh, please, everyone, enjoy the reviews of the Hallmark Christmas movies and. Um, the Christmas movies, uh, all sorts that we ended up uh, watching and reviewing. We're going to be publishing those, uh, one, uh, one sort of set of reviews a day between now and the end of the year. We ended up going farther afield than just Hallmark, though, uh, we found more commonalities than differences. No matter the production company, no matter the streaming service, uh, something about the subject matter really, uh, brings this one, one particularly trenchant observation that Pete pointed out in Hallmark movies is that the love interests kiss exactly Exactly once. <laughs> Precisely once. And like, even when you think they would kiss because it makes story sense, they don't. They kiss exactly once right at the end of the, right at the end of the film. Um, that was true of my Hallmark movies, Pete. I know it was true of yours, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. There's even a movie where the first time they meet, one of the people invites the other one up to their apartment after they eat dinner and they go and they, they go to the apartment and they don't kiss. Like they just, hey, I'm just gonna hang out at the apartment and drink this cocoa. All right, fair enough. Co- so, uh, COVID, baby, it's yeah. cold outside. Nope, 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 none of that. <laughs> COVID has really wrought a lot of change on the Hallmark <laughs> Christmas movie. They they don't kiss. Uh, the yeah. other thing, uh, it's a it's a Christmas miracle. It's a Christmas anti miracle. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> dropped a surprise episode of the TFT podcast. So uh, if you are like me, a horrible person, please go and have Christmas ruined for you through the medium of holiday records uh, by listening to the the episode of the TFT podcast. The first one in two years, uh, considering A Holly Dolly Christmas by uh, unironic national treasure Dolly Parton, A Very Chilly Christmas by Chili Gonzalez, uh, If We Make It Through December by Phoebe Bridgers, and my favorite, uh, the four-song EP Christmas Tide by the goddess herself, Tori Amos. Uh, and uh, it's uh, 90 minutes of me and uh, fellow TFT podcaster Ryan Sheely talking about those um, talking about those things generally being jerks to each other and uh, and really just kind of dismantling any enjoyment you might have of Christmas so uh, if you if that sounds like a good uh, good clean American fun for you go download the TFT podcast speaking of good clean American fun Wonder Woman 1984 takes place in the thriving metropolis of Washington DC where Diana Wonder Woman works at the Smithsonian. Uh, spoilers for this whole movie. Uh, they discover a uh, magical stone, uh, initially thought to be some kind of cheap artifact, but it turns out it grants wishes. Uh, and so uh, I want to start by asking you all, what do you wish for? Pete, what do you wish for? So, okay, I know this is a trick. So I'm going to ask you a question in return. When you, when you ask me what I'm wishing for, which of the two situations is going to play out? Is it either A, 
that I'm going to ask for something and you're going to give it to me in some sort of ironic way, either by changing it because I didn't specify literally what I wanted or in the sense that it isn't actually as cool as I thought it was going to be. And the wish itself becomes kind of a cheap out, a a fraud or a disappointment or a lesson, right? Or are you giving me my wish, but it comes at a terrible cost? Uh, so, you know, oh, I wish I wish that I could be famous and I become famous, but, you know, um, I lose my family. Right. Or I can turn things to gold, but I lose my family or like I can fly in outer space, but I lose my family. Right. So like <laughs> so which which of those two things is it? Is it a BS wish or a BS cost? Yeah. So, uh, I, Pete, I'm going to say that, like, really uh, for strong, cohesive, thematic, uh, good, you know, satisfying narrative, the answer would clearly be number one, the first of your options, right? Okay. Like, okay. So we're going with number two all the way because we're I mean, talking about WW84. WW84, to be clear, does both. You, you get hit both ways. You get it coming and you get it going because you wish for what you think you want. And most of the time, like, yeah, Wonder Woman gets what she wants in a nice way. But there's a dude who wishes for a farm and gets a cow wandering in a public park. Right. Like, and he's like, I don't want this. I don't want it here. I don't want it now. What is this? Right. There's definitely people who wish for something. Oh, I wish for the return of my caliphate or whatever, the dynasty of my ancestors. And the result is the ancestral wall springs up in the city and like cuts all the water mains, right? <laughs> like causes a bunch <laughs> of infrastructure damage. And it's like, man, that's, that's a, that's a real reach genie, right? Like that's like, I don't even think that that's an implied, that's not even an implied consequence of my vanity, right? Like that's just something that has to do with walls, which I didn't even specify when I asked. So, so I would say that wonder woman 84 has the double mumbo jumbo going right where you wish for something and you don't get it exactly a lot of the time sometimes maybe and then also even though i don't specify ahead of time that there's a cost associated with the wish even though a lot of the time the wish is just made with a rock who can't tell you anything about what you're trying to do right um that it still comes with a cost that's that is uh arbitrary and at certain points is specified to be your most precious thing, but other times is whatever you want it to be, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So, to, so- to, to be fair, though, Pete, um, Chris Pine, I mean, Chris Pine, we see Chris Pine in the movie because we want to have a movie with Chris Pine in it because Chris yes. Pine makes movies better. I mean, you know, I for- mean, I see him in every movie for that same reason. You know, yeah, I was watching right. I was watching uh, Gemini Man the other day and I'm like, <laughs> man, how did they get two Chris Pines in this movie? This is great. <laughs> It's like young, it's like mustache Chris Pine and no mustache Chris Pine. But it's like they, and they're both assassins, and they both they both look young. But yeah. the uh, yeah, he's, he's a, sort of the anti Sam Worthington in that respect. But the the uh, you know, but she doesn't actually get him back, right? Like we see him because like through some kind of like the magic of love, she sees him um instead of the way he actually looks but the actual wish that is granted is that like the spirit of chris pine and you know this is christmas so the spirit of chris pine visits us all really i mean if you're yeah. scrooge three chris pines <laughs> visit you most uh, people put a pine in their house for christmas for this very reason oh really it's called be- chris why do you think it's a pine on christmas because of chris pine Guy, put it together. The, the, go into the deep lore, man. That's what it's all about. Oh, sorry, I put a uh, <laughs> I put a Douglas fir, uh, uh, which probably means I don't know. I can't cash that out that quick. Yeah, you can't. Oh, the spirit you? of Michael Douglas will come to your house. <laughs> what fur? <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, so she doesn't actually get her wish in a straightforward way. We see. We get her wish in a straightforward way. And she gets some, some random guy with, with uh stereotypical fashion sense, you know, um, in the thing. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be generous. Uh, I am a, I am a merciful evil podcast overlord and say that, uh, you can pick the, okay. uh, the way that you're going. You can pick the kind of the monkey's paw aspect is like, is it half magic where you sort of half grant, uh, what you wish, uh, when, as Robert Frost says, some fate willfully misunderstands you, uh, or it can be that, uh, there is a kind of punishment, uh, inherent in the wish for, uh, you know, for your, um, uh, for your, that, that mirrors your character defect that leads to the wish because wanting things is obviously a sign that you're a bad person. Right. Okay. Well, if that is the case, then what I want 
is for all the little children walking around America's malls to have a little bit of extra excitement this Christmas season. <laughs> That's my wish. <laughs> Wait, is this not a movie that's ripped from the headlines? Is that are you not are you not identifying really closely with the introductory sequence to Wonder Woman 1984? And I guess is that even the introduction? When did the movie start? It's very long. When it feels longer than it is too. Uh, did it start in the mall or did it start with the sequence from Brave? And then go to the mall. Yeah, it's the sequence um, from Brave. Okay, okay, and then, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. and then it goes to the mall. But that it right. is um, where they play Quidditch on horseback, right? Yeah. Uh, but the yeah, it is. Uh, I, right. But it is, it's funny because like you'd think that like it would be irrelevant because malls are no longer a thing, but it turns out it's irrelevant because shopping is no longer a thing. <laughs> leaving the house. Because yeah, yeah, leaving the house is, uh, is no longer a thing, right? Like, um, I don't know. Yeah. Where, where, where we were meant to shop, if not entirely on Amazon. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that is, that is one of many unrealistic or, or at least anachronistic. I should say things in uh, Wonder Woman 1984. Mark, what do you wish for? What I really wish for, like deep down inside, Matt, is that I had been able to see this in a movie theater, oh. not streamed over HBO Max, um, with its like frankly pretty poor video quality, like the same nasty art of streaming artifacts that really plagued uh, that episode of Game of Thrones that everybody complained about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw it. Uh, I, I saw it in my presentation as well. That's what I really wish for, Matt. And this is the part where you now tell me that I'm the owner of AMC Theater Chain and I'm saddled with billions of dollars of debt and <laughs> a business model that is a total dead end. <laughs> oh Nuts. man, can you can you imagine how much better this movie would be if you could if you were eating movie theater candy while you were watching it? Yes. Or like popcorn. What candy would you eat while you were watching Wonder Woman 1984 to like really give you that full experience? I would just go full popcorn or oh man. It clear uh yeah, clear uh clearer favorite for me just always. I don't I, do you theme the candy to the film, Pete? Well, here's what I'm thinking. So normally, and sorry, Mark, I didn't mean to, to jump and steal your uh, steal your thunder on this. So feel free to seize it back whenever you like. But my default movie theater candy is Raisinets. I love Raisinets. Uh-huh. However, I've been known to go Junior Mint. I love me some Junior Mints. Uh-huh. And I've been known to go Toblerone if they've got it. And I've been known to go well, Peanut a f- M&M's. That's a fancy theater. You're in a fancy theater if you got Toblerone in that theater. That's a fancy I mean, theater. You know they gotta. You gotta realize you gotta put bus in the seats somehow when you're allowed to by circumstance. But let's let's fate. be honest here. Like because this is a a cursed wish, right? You're not buying the Torbalone from my AMC. You are uh, smuggling it in from the bodega down the street. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not and capturing I'm getting, that. And I'm getting here. caught, and I'm going to prison. Right? That's what's happening. Is that I'm going to go to prison for life for for smuggling Torbalone into the movie theater. Uh, I feel like Wonder Woman 1984 is like a big soda peanut M M&M and M movie. Yeah, like it's got it's got the crunch. You want the multiple flavors. You want the sugar coating. You want the chocolate. You want the you want a little bit of extra substance because the movie has that little bit of extra substance, but you have to wait for it, right? So I'm thinking that I if I were sitting down with like but like a big old soda, so I could take like three bathroom breaks, right? Because that's I want the intermissions, yeah. maybe two. <laughs> so big old diet coke. You know, I'll, t- I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Actually, watching it on streaming, we actually put two intermissions into our viewing of this movie, and it probably benefited from that, from a little bit of like relief, <laughs> you know, and not the kind of not you know not the kind afforded by uh, heating nature's call. No, a kind of like uh, mental relief involved in like stopping the barrage, uh, especially as the second act of the movie turned into the turned into the third act of the movie. I'll I'll just say that that um, I am uh, I am a Red Vines stalwart. Um, uh. Red Vines are uh, I'm not even sure they're flavored, but they are colored red. Uh, but they're just corn syrup. They're, and and in keeping with the the Christmas spirit, the corn syrup is made flesh and uh, dwells among us. 
and uh, you eat it. You can you can even like um, bite off the ends and, and make it a straw. So uh, yeah, red vines all the way. I usually uh, fi- intend to stretch the red vines out for a long portion of the movie, but finish them within the first like twelve or thirteen minutes. But I think that for this one, uh, I probably would have finished the red vines before the long Quidditch scene was was over. Um, Matt, at the beginning, when, when you wrap a red vine around your finger, do you tell the truth or do you see the truth? Well, the red vine is truth. Actually, that's, <laughs> that's a that's a lie. The red, a red vine is false. A re, everything about a red vine is, uh, you know, everything about a red vine is a lie. So the, I mean, the dynamics of wishing in in this movie is pretty. Uh, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's pretty confused. It like, it's, it's a lot confused. I don't know. I, we talked a lot about it on, on the first Wonder Woman podcast that we did, uh, about the much better, uh, first film, solo Wonder Woman film in the, you know, various DC, uh, franchise universe, multi-franchise universe, um, about, you know, World War One and going back to the First World War, uh, and how it goes, you know, how, uh, really Marvel had pretty much taken, squeezed all the juice out of World War Two. And so they went back to World War One and there were sort of things about it and the way that kind of her, uh, Diana intervening in history, you know, um, had certain effects and allowed you to kind of say interesting things about, uh, about people. Um, was there anything about this film that needed to be that for, for which it needed to be set in 1984 was, was 1984 an important character in this film, the way the first world war, the great war was an important character in the, the first film, or was it just like, Hey, here are some, you know, here are some costume designs we want to, to put on screen. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was trying to be charitable and so it's trying to draw a line from, uh, the movie wall street, right. Starting the aforementioned Michael Douglas of uh, Douglas fur fame, uh, to, you know, the whole themes of greed, um, and uh, like unfettered, uh, capitalism and selfishness, um, which is you know has in the culture become associated with the 80s but as we have discovered in the ensuing decades by no means limited to said decade so i would say like i guess that's the, like the most direct line that i can draw there but um you know i, I think on balance i would agree that like it's it, it's mostly about shoulder pads uh, and aesthetic right? <laughs> other, other themes uh, thematic stuff pete what do you think I, w- I would say that it's tricky and satisfying to talk about wonder woman 1984 because I think that the movie's main problems have to do with editing. And I don't just mean the sequence editing, but the macro editing, right? Like the structural editing, the way the whole thing is put together, and the way that you come to understand what is going on or don't understand what's going on in sequence while you're watching it, right? So, so after the fact, I can look at what they were doing and be like, oh, yeah, I see. But that doesn't mean that when I was watching it, I felt it. Like I didn't feel while I was watching the movie – that I mean, having I don't I only very, very faintly remember 1984. Right. My awareness is much more get started in like 88, 89. Right. When I have many more memories, I have some memories from that early, but not a lot. But what I would say is there's a couple of different angles, as is with a lot of this movie. There's a bunch of different angles and they didn't pick one. They picked a bunch. So one of them is that Wonder Woman 1984 is about is positioned at the beginning of the movie as about the childhood of the people who are our age, who are watching the movie, (laughs) right? In the sense that old, uh, older movies might've been about the fifties as a sort of golden era for America. It starts out with the thesis that your golden era, the time that is golden for you is the time of your childhood. Because when you come across the world, you see so much promise and beauty and wonder in the world. And then as you get older, you lose track of it, right? And uh, and it, it seems like you have to figure out that it's still beautiful, but it's a challenge because it really sucks, right? And so 1984 is positioned as a, as a childhood time, presumably for us. Now, 
and it is not the child to a time for Wonder Woman, right? Wonder Woman is supposed to be old and grizzled. So that's one of the approaches to 1984 in this movie. And I said there are several is that in 1984, we are young, but Wonder Woman is old. And Wonder Woman is trying to come to terms with being old in 1984. And we are trying to come to terms with being old now. <laughs> and so by seeing Wonder Woman relate to the 80s, we're supposed to see something about how we relate to our own lives now. This is only really relevant for the first like 15 or 20 minutes of the movie, I guess. Right. It's like that's not really like what's happening, but it's but it's explicitly stated. Right. And it's sort of put out there as like this is a proposition of why it needs to happen. Uh, why does it not work? There's really nothing in the movie about being a child in the 80s. There's no character. There's a, there's like a, there are characters in the movie who are children in the 80s, but you don't actually go into their lives at all or see them they aren't really part of the story this isn't a stranger things movie right this isn't like if imagine or I mean, it's I, not even an iron man 3 movie with a, a yeah, sidekick right 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 i mean i would even venture to say that you could take the child characters entirely out of this movie and, and very little would change in fact it would probably just be better it would just probably be more, less confused right and there's several notable sort of placeholders that are occupied by children in this movie who don't have any agency and don't really do anything, but who exist. Uh, and if you were to take them away and the movie would probably be better, but I think there's supposed to be this sort of proposition. And I think the argument again, it's like, well, in the eighties, what's the big thing that's different about childhood than it is now? Well, latchkey kids, right? In the eighties, you were post the legal liberation of women to divorce their husbands but pre the legal requirement that children be attended to at all times. And so you have a lot of women in the workforce and a lot of kids, and this is in the United States, I don't know how it happened in other places, a lot of women in the workforce, a lot of kids at home by themselves with no caretaking, right? And like the story sort of goes into that a little bit, but not really. Uh, anyway, but that's one proposition of what the 80s is. Another proposition of what the 80s is, is that it is uh, around, like when, it, when I talk to my grandparents in the 80s, they would tell me about how when they were growing up, oh, you know, we maybe we had an icebox, right? You know, we certainly didn't have a telephone, right? Like the things that were still in living memory in the old people of the 80s in terms of how different life was, I think is 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 much, much higher order than what we remember as being different about our childhoods. And I think we remember our childhoods as being very different from now, right? But the idea that like, oh yeah, we didn't have, you know, penicillin. Right. We, we didn't have, you know, I had 15 uh, siblings and like three of them didn't make it. Yeah. Right. Um, like they, that, they, that, di they yeah. died of polio. Right. Yeah, exactly. There were very and these were things like these are people I know. Right. Or knew they're gone now, but I knew them. Right. And I knew them well. They were my grandparents and my grandparents, you know, all their relatives and, and peers and stuff. Right. Uh, and this was stuff that they that they went through. Right. Like like radio being the sort of dominant form of entertainment. Uh, and so there is this proposition of like, well, we look at the world we live in and we think of it as crappy, but if you were to take somebody who was much, much older and brought them into the current world, they would think it's awesome. And so therefore we should maybe entertain the possibility that we're lucky and our lives are nice. Right. Uh, at least in some way, right. At least to the degree that we shouldn't, you know, lash out in desperation towards some sort of quick fix to like, you know, you know, bring, cure our terrible existence. Right. Um, because, hey, you know, you know, there's like there's like, uh, you know, airplanes and 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 beautiful courtyards and like, you know, arts everywhere. Escal right? and, escalators, and, and escalators, a, ma a mass right? transit system. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like a train that can go at like thirty five miles an hour, you know, underground. Um, so that's one of the other propositions that the eighties is about as far back as you can go before you start losing track of really, uh, taken for granted for an entrenched modern convenience. That is, right? I mean, that's um, an interesting, that's an interesting point. You're saying it kind of threads a particular needle between being recognizably our society and yet different enough from our society to, to have a, uh, you know, otherness to it, to have a, like, uh, the past is another country, uh, kind of flavor to it, which, you know, any, any sooner than that, like the nineties, you know, um, I wonder what the dividing line is. Do you think it's cell phones? 
You think between it's, the eighties and nineties? No, I'm set, no between oh. between uh, that's Ghost. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, which is also what this movie uh, is inspired bu- by as well. Buster, Buster's two is the. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you're going to have to take control. Uh. <laughs> but the um uh, no the the dividing line the dividing technology. I I wonder if we could pinpoint it to a particular like social development or technological development or something that would uh divide between uh, the time that is you know recognizably our time and and also recognizably sort of other uh recognizably kind of unfamiliar or a little bit alienating or and and a time that is just like you know uh our time but a long time ago right and yeah. i i wonder if the that invention isn't isn't cell phones right because like it's it's notable that this film doesn't have any brick sized cell phones or car phones or what you know mm-hmm. as they as they were at the time right like uh even the very even the very rich guy when he starts you know when his ill-gotten riches give him a like a rolls royce um that he's rolling to his meeting with the president in you know he doesn't have a car phone in there and I, i i wonder if the presence or absence of a car phone would make it would sort of invalidate the the hypothesis that you're advancing and so they can't have a car phone in the movie in order to to you know have the effect that you're you're uh describing and then and then of course the other dimension is the it's it's the cold war it's the period in time wherein people are reinvesting in escalating global conflict for their in the interest in their own interest and i don't just mean sort of global chaos i mean you know dipole great powers conflict right like the idea that you would push the possibility of of thermonuclear war as as something that is sort of a necessary means to an end is is a moment because you have a bit of a detente in the 70s right uh at least between the soviet union and the united states and then and then it kind of breaks down a little bit uh and then of course it breaks down a lot in the other direction right um but uh but there's this is the sort of the notion of it being morning in america which has a jingoistic element to it right i mean the the idea that, that this is taking place in the same world where rambo 2 is taking place right like wonder woman is more of a rambo 1 kind of person in that she sort of appreciates the lost and she appreciates the sort of feeling out of out of step with society and kind of feeling like society has kind of lost its way and left behind the good people. But, but 1984 is, is a Rambo two kind of year. Uh, in fact, I'm going to check and see when Rambo two even came out, um, which is in fact, uh, 1985, right? So, uh, Rambo, by the way, Rambo, the reason I bring up Rambo two, right. Is because for those unfamiliar, Rambo one is about a disenchanted Vietnam veteran who ends up being harassed so much that he becomes violent and has a bunch of regrettable, uh, deadly confrontations with local law enforcement in the Pacific Northwestern woods. Rambo two is when they send this guy jacked up on steroids back to Vietnam to get revenge on the communists and to like rescue POWs. Right. Uh, it's, it's a very different kind of story. Um, and I guess that's something that people characteristically would say, right? So on one hand, it's the sort of greed and excess that's associated with stock market and savings and loan booms, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, all that stuff. Uh, and then it's also associated with a kind of global, you know, two-pole great power politics and the notion of kind of huge explosions of both a biological in terms of like flexing of muscles and like biochemical and, and inorganically chemical and such uh, so the sort of escalation and stakes are kind of connected, but these are like all these different, totally unrelated kinds of stories. Well, right. Yeah. Uh, that's, and that's the thing. Like it doesn't, I, everything that you're talking about, I, I suppose is sort of thematically there. I don't know, Pete, you might be overthinking it, but like, <laughs> uh, it's all it, it, to the extent that it's there, it's all implicit. You know, it's not like the, I, I don't feel like the film cashes out, um, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these relationships, right? Like, and I, the sort of latchkey kid, or not even latchkey kid, the the sort of like divorce football kid, you know, mm-hmm. who gets sort of punted back and forth between the parents. Um, that character, like, is a huge, huge sort of missed opportunity, right? Like, and doesn't, you know, I don't know the the like the Mandalorians, um, you know, uh 
sort of big reveal in this is that like, oh, I, I actually, I wanted to be a father after all. Like that was the most, that was the most important thing all along this, like this family relationship and, you know, my obligation to my child and, and, um, you know, uh, this sort of satisfying, this relationship is actually, uh, the most satisfying and important relationship and not, you know, all of my business ventures and stuff like that. That's not prepared at all <laughs> in, uh, in the movie, right? Because, you know, not, we, the only, the only way the kid shows up is as a, as a scheduling inconvenience. There's, and, and also like, um, kind of freaked out, kind of scared by his father, even before his father becomes, uh, you know, the, the, the villain of the movie and the arch nemesis of whatever, but like the, uh, he's just like, um, sort of disappointed, uh, in his dad and there's no, there's no mom. Right. And that's the, that's the, um, that's the relationship that, that I don't know would have brought some heft to this. Right. Cause that's the, the relationship where the, uh, the conflict is, you know, like, like doing ha, ha, the, the obligation to do childcare at, at certain times as a parent is, is, is not a, a conflict between you and the other parent, you know, or between you and the kid. It is, if it is a conflict, it's a conflict between you and the other parent. And like that, it doesn't it's like, Oh, you want me to feed you versus I want to eat. Right? Like, it's not a conflict. Right. Like, <laughs> right. And that's like, uh, that's not, um, I, I don't know. It's so like, uh, so a lot of this stuff and like, uh, I don't know, I can, is, is there another child in, in the movie other than the ones who are sort of saved by, uh, uh, the, the other one, the ones who are saved by Diana in the mall. And then later in a kind of tragic register in the, uh, Cairo, Egypt, um, a truck chase scene. Well, yeah, there's Max Lord himself. Here's the thing, Matt. You you say that they aren't that these things aren't articulated in the movie. You're sort of correct, but they are also key to the movie's many climaxes and plots, right? So, like Max, the main villain in the movie has a neglected child from a divorce who is like in a bunch of scenes that seem to indicate that they're going to be important, and then have this sort of cathartic end that feels completely disconnected from everything else that's happening in the movie, and seems to be of no consequence. Sorry, Mark, I interrupted. uh, do you have, can you, can you cash out something about Max Lord's kid? What's going on there? Cause I was lost. I just, I was totally uh, lost. Not really. No, but just, just to state the really obvious thing, which is that like, uh, that whole flashback, right. It is tacked on at the very end to make you feel more sympathetic, uh, towards Max, Max Lord. It's like, Oh, he had his, all this, this tough stuff here. And you know, this kind of explains why, you know, he tried to be a successful businessman and make other people's dreams come true and, you know, give a, uh, some, you know, a sympathetic lens towards his character. Um, and we were just kind of expected to buy all that at yeah. the very end of it. Let's be honest here. Like um, Disney plus did all that heavy lifting to make us more sympathetic to a Pedro Pascal character <laughs> that this movie actually <laughs> Disney plus had nothing to do with this. This is HBO max, dude. <laughs> it's not the same. No, I know, it's, I no, know. it's that this takes place in the uh, Mandalorian extended universe, right? Like is what Mark is saying, the the Pedro Pascal extended yeah. universe, where yeah, I mean, like being absolutely being a child of war, you know, and a Mandalorian, a, a uh, you know, child of the Watch uh, or whatever, you know, Max Lord definitely. Um, you know, it, uh, is, is super traumatized and, and seeks to, uh, you know, seeks to make right everything that was wrong in, in his upbringing through being a bounty hunter. This is the way. This is the kind of movie where if you told me that someone came to a meeting after the movie was pretty much done and said, Oh my God, have you seen Pedro with the baby Yoda? It's the best. We got to get a kid in this movie, right? Like we got to give him a kid because he's the best with a kid, right? And they were just like, why would there be a child in this movie? <laughs> it makes no sense. And they just – just like if they were like, look, we, we we tested the picture of her in the hawk armor. I'm telling you, it's great. People <laughs> love the hawk armor. What hawk armor? What are you talking about? There's no hawk oh, armor Okay, we had to go back and shoot a scene where it's just like <laughs> randomly in her hallway closet, in yeah. her home office, wrapped up in paper. Like, 
Like, I don't know if that's really how it happened or whether it was all on a board and they were all kind of like talking about it. But I would totally believe that it's that for most of this movie, there was not a child in it yeah. at all. And they just added it all at the end. Uh, either that or they had it at first and they added everything else. Um, I don't know. I could keep harping on the editing, which or, is not fair. I, I should just talk about what I don't like about it. But we anyway. should do. I mean, you know, guys, the the best scenes in Harry Potter you know, which was a Warner's movie, so we don't have to pay anything extra to include them, were the Quidditch scenes. So <laughs> we have to include. Yeah, it's like Point Break. I think of Harry Potter as sort of a Point Break-esque Quidditch movie, where which has like wizardry as a secondary occupation, like bank robbery vis-a-vis surfing, right? It's, it's, uh, but uh, sorry, I did, I did leave out one big thing about the 80s which i did want to touch on because i think it's important for the fact that this is a wonder woman movie and to a degree i wonder if this was the one that they really should have gone after more which was that we're we're in the working girl years we are yes. in a situation yes. yeah thank you for that where, yeah where 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 co-education has become a big enough pervasive reality that women are getting opportunities to work in the professions right and uh, and and to establish themselves as, you know, managers and as uh, in like in sort of male dominated fields. Right. And so one of the many one of the stories of Wonder Woman 1984 is a story of an abandoned child and the kind of psychic wound that his father carries with him that he tries to fill with, like, get rich quick schemes and whatnot. Right. One of the stories of Wonder Woman 1984 is about a tense political situation in the Middle East where everybody has dreams about what they want to do and where they see escalating force, violence and resources as the solution. Right. And that's also kind of 80s ish about this. Right. But one of the plots of Wonder Woman 1984 is about two women. And one of those women is a very qualified and uh, an impressive professional. But 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 because of. Her in this case, I guess it's sort of her social, sort of her social awkwardness, maybe. But she's very insecure about not being good at the things that I get. I mean, you would even venture to say women are supposed to traditionally be good at. That is like looking pretty and attracting people, right? Wearing so wearing she, high heels, which is wearing like, high heels, perfect. on repeatedly. Yes, exactly. So she she is a working woman who who is very impressive and should, by all rights, you know, have a lot of friends and whatnot. But she doesn't because she's kind of socially awkward and, and that's fine. It's a comic book movie. If you're watching this movie, you should at least understand the concept of somebody who has difficulty making friends. I know I do. Uh, and uh, but yes, the idea that she she wishes for those traditional feminine things because she wants that validation and it shows the folly in her doing that because she gives up those dimensions of herself that really do make her special. Right. And, and really do make her worthwhile. And she becomes the villain because she wants to wear high heels rather than be a world class gemologist, uh, which, if you ask me, is truly, truly, truly outrageous. Uh, and I'll tell you that right now. Um, man, nothing. Did that do nothing for either of you guys? Uh, sorry, like, I was I was I was muted. This is why you shouldn't mute your microphone in the <laughs> on a Zoom call, because when you guffaw, you know, otherwise you're just performing to. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Pete, I. Uh, one thing I'll say about the 80s is that the music is contagious. Mm. Truly, mm. truly, truly outrageous. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank it's, I, I, it's showtime synergy. One of the other weird things about this movie is you have two really wonderful camp performances in a movie that is relentlessly serious and has this old, just hammer you in the face, Hans Zimmer score that just never lets up for a freaking minute. Uh, okay, the score is is serious, yes, but is the rest of it, though? I like don't Pedro know. Pascal is hamming it up. He's just like drawing on like Donald Trump and Lex Luthor from the from you know the Kevin yeah. not the Kevin the the, the Gene, Gene Hackman, Hackman Kevin Space uh, Gene Hackman performance yeah. from the eighties as well too. Like this movie is like it is mostly over the top, and yet you're, but to be fair, right? Yeah, you're right. So there's like then I'm thinking this through a little bit, especially like the character sequences between Wonder Woman and um, and Chris Pine, Steve Trevor. Right. That stuff takes itself very seriously. Well, other than the ones that are fashion shows, it's like it's like other than that. Yeah, you're you're right. Because I always felt very conflicted because I look at it. I'm thinking, well, there are lots of campy performances in this movie and there's a fair amount that's funny. But at the same time, the movie felt really grim and and serious. And it has like like I keep going back to that really long fight sequence involving the convoy crossing the Sahara 
and her getting kind of jammed between the trucks and and all that. And it's like none of that had any real whimsy to it. And, and it was it was felt like something out of kind of Wrath of the Titans esque kind of Redbox movie where it's just like, oh, we're gritty and we're grimy and we're fighting and it's loud. Right. And it's like. I know you can do both because I've seen a lot of Fast and the Furious movies and, and they could do both. They could have like, you know, grim, grimy, loud. Yeah, but and they, they could also have like ridiculousness. Sure, but, but it's it's not – it's it's different. It's This actually is something that, that our teacher, John Hollander, used to point out is that the, the, the proper opposition is not between funny and serious, right? Because serious is a quality and funny is like a tone, you know? Uh, the proper opposition is between serious and frivolous, Right. There are things that are there are things in life that are serious, that are important, and there are things in life that are frivolous. Uh, and and the proper opposition in tone, right, is between funny and solemn, you know, mm. like and that the this is a movie that is solemn about things that are frivolous. Uh, right. Because what what plot wise is the import of that truck chase? She basically does, they, they do it and then they leave Egypt immediately. Like there's no, there's no need for it to, uh, to take place there. You know, there's no, there isn't even like any mumbo jumbo, like many, many centuries ago, ago, our Orientalist forebears foretold that blah, 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 blah. That that doesn't even happen, right? Like we go, it it does serve one function to be fair, which is to highlight, well, it serves two functions. One is to allow Gal Gadot to don the famous Wonder Woman costume for the first time in the movie. And the second is that it uh, shows her vulnerability, that she's losing her powers. That That is where we first see that. Sure, but you don't, need, you don't need to be in Egypt to see that, right? Like that, that action scene could have taken place anywhere else. And what, what, what happens? We go back to D.C. and launch into a long disquisition about the Mayans. Right. It doesn't, it, they, they're sort of, I guess, like in, they are ancient civilization. They're both ancient civilizations. Like, uh, Egypt was around thousands of years ago and the Mayans were around, you know, before the common era. But, um, like it doesn't, uh, I don't know. The, the, I, I also think like the, the quality of, um, the quality of charm, right? Uh, is sort of missing. Like there, there's something in that Wonder Woman. Um, there's there's something in that like Wonder Woman versus tanks and trucks versus like the armored personnel carriers or the convoy trucks that uh um you know that that happens uh that that just is I don't know it's not on a human scale and for what it's worth the way they shot all the the war stuff in world war 1 was sort of on a human scale uh, until of until the very end right and they saved right. the the cgi punching you know and the like the the kind of the magic um between Remus Lupin of the Harry Potter franchise and uh Gal Gadot uh for they saved that for the very end when you'd seen her like run through no man's land you know uh flicking away individual bullets with her cuffs and and by doing that by having that kind of on on a human scale there's a certain i mean it's it was a, a horrific war and and changed a lot of um Oh, changed a lot of stuff about, uh, the way, you know, uh, the English, the Americans, a lot of people, Europeans thought about war, but like, uh, still there, there is a kind of a humanity to that, um, to the, to those scenes. It's completely missing in the, the kind of the grinding, uh, mechanism of the truck stuff on, uh, uh, in the kind of the pointless Cairo sequence. And it's also missing from the um, blown out proportions of the apocalyptic sequence uh, at the end, even though it really interesting, though, like it tries to uh, give it a literally human face and that like, you know, just like, you know, you have these quick cuts of everyday people wishing for these preposterous things and getting it and suffering bad consequences. And then just like the camera holding on everyday people again, just kind of like witnessing the crazy things going on. But it, it feels very disjointed. And disconnected in that way. Yeah. Pete, yeah. sorry, trying to get in there. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to really double down on this notion of solemn about things that are frivolous because that set a light off for me. This is a movie that has a pretty solemn and meditative 
and drawn out contemplative scene that explains and introduces Wonder Woman's invisible jet. Right. <laughs> Which it is. It is and also, that also has Kristen Wiig turning into a cat. Right. And like slashing at Wonder Woman with her CGI Van Helsing claws. Right. Which is I would always associated that sort of like zero G people jumping around with no sense of weight. I associated with those like 2004 era CGI action movies like Van Helsing with, you know, with uh, Hugh Jackman. But yeah. But like this movie has so much that's just very silly and campy and fun. And yet it also has this like really, really, I mean, solemn is the best word. I can't think of a better one. Scene introducing the stupidest thing that's in any comic book ever. I mean, maybe not, maybe not ever, but like that maybe is Wonder Woman's invisible jet the stupidest accoutrement of any top tier superhero uh, is, is my rhetorical question. And the answer is yes in this movie because she can fly. Right. I guess I guess the thing that makes the invisible jet really stupid is that you can still see Wonder Woman most of the time. Right. Like like when they conceive of the invisible jets, a lot of the times they're like, well, you know, if it's invisible, then she can see out of it and other people can see through it. Right. So they could just see Wonder Woman like flying through the air as if she's sitting in an airplane, um, which is itself just lunacy. Uh, but I mean, it's a comic book. It doesn't matter. It's supposed to be fun and fun and funny and stuff. But, but this whole thing of like, my father taught me the ancient techniques that I, that are used to hide his island. When, when did this happen? Who's your father? <laughs> I don't remember who your father is. He a guy, is he Zeus or something? I don't know. It, it happens sometimes, right. sometime before she picked up the golden armor and stored it in her apartment. Yes, exactly. Like it's, I feel like there's a bunch of missing scenes from this like two and a half hour movie. Uh, where it's like, what is there going to be the Zack Snyder cut of this one too? He didn't even make <laughs> it. <laughs> it's like, oh man. Oh, there's yeah. a whole spinoff uh, with Cheetah um, that we actually have, has already come out. It's called Cat. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. You know, Idris Elba should really be cast as the Cheetah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he was. That's crazy. Yeah, but it's like the movie has Pedro Pascal in a fake. Shooter McGavin kind of outfit. Well, who is that? It's a it's like a fake Darcy from Married with Children haircut, right? It's like it's like yep. he's on Dynasty or Dallas or something, and he's got this outrageous. It's not suit. not Trump to be clear, right? I think we mentioned Trump earlier in, in our discussion on this, but there's I, definitely there's something. I mean, guess on, right? yeah, I guess I guess it's like old Trump, not modern Trump, where it's like where it's sort of like wound up on his head like a uh, like a wicker basket. Um, with, with sort of like one read, no, it's has old, been like it's, woven back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, yeah. no, it's old pompadour. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. 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 Yeah. So, so it's, uh, it, it's got all that, but then it also has this like, oh man, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, life and existence while flying in an invisible jet? You know, like, it's, 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 let me, let me fly through the fireworks and consider the, the impermanence of all things in my invisible jet, right? Like, it's, it's, it's just, I don't know. Did that strike you as a stretch that, that the, uh, I, I don't, I don't begrudge this movie having the invisible jet in it. It's Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman has some of the dumbest powers and dumbest villains because she's from like a hundred years ago. So like, of course they're dumb, right? By modern standards. Also, she's an S and M allegory, right? So like <laughs> the stuff that she's doing is, I mean, okay. So like, and I don't want to be trivializing about it. Right. But it's like a lot of the accoutrement of wonder woman comes from the guy who came up with her being a psychologist who was very enthusiastic about kind of dominance play in sexual context, right? Specifically with women. Right. And so that's why she ties people up, right? And that's that's why she's like a really strong woman who can beat guys up. And, and I mean, it's it's it it struck this chord, right? And it, it ended up having this additional significance that is sort of blown out, and become this huge cultural phenomenon for a whole bunch of reasons. But it's like if you're kind of drilling into what this all means, where what like okay, I want to put a, a lasso that makes people tell the truth into my into my story. Well, like you're going to have a dimension of a woman tying people up who's in a skimpy outfit. And I think that they, they nailed that, right? They have that down. It's got the titillation aspects, but it's not overblown at all. Right. It's like, as far as action sequences go, it's exactly as kinetic and kind of uh, physical as is comfortable. And, you know, if she ties some guy up and makes him talk, yeah, there's that edge to it, but that kind of thing is, it's not excessive. Right. 
it's well balanced with with Wonder Woman being like a capable pure superhero kind of character. But stuff like the freaking I don't even know what the invisible jet is supposed to be doing. Um, <laughs> well, like, I don't know. Flying. I guess it's I guess it's, it's all that it's like, how does Wonder Woman get from a story that's happening in Europe to one that's happening in Asia? And it's like, I guess she doesn't go commercial and she guess she has the invisible jet. Why doesn't she have a visible jet? I don't know. Like, why does why is Wonder Woman trying to tell all the children in the movie not to tell anybody about her when she's doing outrageous lasso tricks in broad freaking daylight in front of thousands of people? <laughs> like, I don't understand this movie. I don't understand. I'm losing my mind. I also watched this movie with the nonstop cooing and jumping and playfulness of an eight month old child. So, like, if there was explanations for any of this, I was like incapable of picking any of it up. And so it's just it's it's it was a cacophony, and Hans Zimmer was just like bah, the whole time. Yeah, does, does it, yeah. Does HBO Max have really bad sound mixing on your TVs? You know, uh, also, actually, all the streaming services do. I have the oh, like okay. the classical the classic problem where like dialogue is mixed really low, and then the like the sound yes. the sound effects and the the soundtrack blams uh, are just mixed way way too high. So you end up having to do this dance with the remote all the time of like turning it way the f up so that you can actually hear what the people are saying, and then like quickly you know, uh, turning it down so that your neighbors don't call the police on you um, for, you know, having a noise disturbance in in the middle of the neighborhood. Uh, That involves like, you know, I don't know, uh, machine guns and uh, and explosions. Um, Hey, since we talked about uh, the Hans Zimmer music a couple of times in this, like, can we just uh, a appreciate uh, the Wonder Woman theme that came out actually was debuted in Batman versus Superman, uh, Dawn of Justice. Um, one of the only good things that came out of that movie um, that uh, right, that kind of uh, this is kind of that, that music that makes your hair, uh, the hair in your neck uh, stand up. Right. Like it, there's this amazing contrast between how good that theme is and how poorly they've been able to execute it uh, in, in subsequent movies and create any kind of like notable um, sonic, like a musical soundscape for uh for Wonder Woman movies or DC movies writ large it, it I, that fascinates me to no end so yeah Hans Zimmer music uh not great but that particular theme which I don't think Hans Zimmer wrote by the way um but pretty good and a shame that it didn't get more uh more use, utility in this. I, yeah I, I gotta say I I don't get what it does I mean the knock on the knock on film music is that it's sort of sent it's a sentimental instruction manual right like it it's telling you how to feel um but like how to feel how, how does that bomb that bomb make you feel uh like it just makes me feel kind of barraged right it makes me feel sort of anxious and and i don't know unpleasant as though i were itchy or like wearing something too tight yeah. and uh yeah it doesn't i you know i don't have like it's it's not even you know sentimental in in the sense that like you know sad violin music when uh you know, I don't know when the the a child is in peril or something like that would like, you know, really amp up the the emotion. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure what it does except kind of soften you up, uh, good cop bad cop interrogator style. Yeah, I I felt one one specific moment also that I thought deserved some credit, even though I, I was just so lost watching this movie. It was really cathartic. I like I cried a couple times watching this movie out of exhaustion. Uh, <laughs> Because of the combined effort of like attempting childcare while like watching this movie without peanut M and M's or M and M's of any kind, um, was when Wonder Woman is learning to fly. Right, so Wonder Woman first she takes she starts running and it's like okay she's running she's thinking about going somewhere, then she takes a big old leap and she sticks she takes a big jump and you're like oh okay she's doing like a Hulk jump right she's going to travel by leaping, you know, miles at a time. And she's going to travel over land some great distance by doing this. And then she throws her lasso out what appears to be several thousand feet and catches the tail of an airplane, like far, far above her. Right. And kind of, and kind of, which, okay, fair enough. It's wonder woman. It's comic book movie. If that's, what's going to happen at this point. Great. Right. And then she catapults herself into the air presumably flinging herself to her death or to some sort of horrible injury or to her like landing in the middle of the ocean. And, and she, while she's falling, she, she sort of has this meditative remembrance of 
Steve Trevor's description of her flying, and then she learns how to fly, right? This whole sequence is very silly, you know? But but the whole thing is scored in what feels like an echo of the first flight sequence from the Man of Steel movie, which is really good. Like, I really like the first flight sequence in the first uh, Man of Steel movie, and I use that song to, like, get myself amped up for going for runs sometimes, uh, I think, I mean, the song piece, it's not even, it's not even as structured as such, right? It's kind of fragmented and broken down and kind of, uh, builds up from there. It felt like Wonder Woman learning how to fly was in the tones of the music being fed to us as if it is Superman learning how to fly in Man of Steel. So I get it, right? I, I get what, I don't feel like this is a movie that lacks thought. I feel like there are a lot of ideas and a lot of justifications and a lot of reasons why everything is happening. But but the different reasons are, that are not that are happening at the same time are not the same or are are not like aware of each other, right? So it's like the sequence. I don't know. The sequence seemed, you know, it, like it should be something freer or or kind of goofier or not goofy, but like it's a con- it, the the sequence is a suspension of reality, right? The Superman sequence seems like in the wasteland, and he like leans down and he puts the knuckles of his fist to the earth, right? And the earth vibrates and the rocks start moving and then he launches himself up into the sky, right? It's this very sort of bleak, you know, man versus nature thing. And here Wonder Woman is kind of running through a city surrounded by throngs of people that she protects all the time and pretends don't know who she is and and kind of leaps out and kind of flies off of a plane. She's like doing Tony Hawk with stuff. And it's just this this exultant physical display of virtuosity and fearlessness being like, I'm a superhero. I get to do whatever I want. I'm, I'm Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, right. Is kind of the, the angle that we're sort of seeing here. Uh, but, but like, but more so, but writ large, right. I can launch myself over the ocean. Um, but, but it's, but the music feels much more like it's supposed to be happening in a wasteland, you know? And, and so that's, that's, I felt like there were references and cross references and there were things happening in the cinematic universe and things that were being explained in sort of an eighties way. Uh, but, but other things really weren't. And there were very different standards on what was plausible and what level of period piece we were in and what level of reality we sure. were in. Okay. So here's a, trying to follow. here's a grand unified theory, right? Okay. Like that there are three, um, there are kind of three acts, Right. One, the, the first act is a, is a, a kind of quirky social comedy about women in the workplace. Right. right. The second act is a bunch of ritualistic kabuki. And that is her, like, her hand positions and poses while she's flying, you know, like, and it's not clear that they're, connected to any change in her like velocity and her momentum you know but she just kind of does this like hand like uh pose dance that looks like uh it looks like a martial art like kata you know like she's doing a naruto she's like summoning her her the nine-tailed demon fox right but it just it goes on it's not like it doesn't even repeat it's not connected to anything i don't know maybe there is lore around this that uh, you have to be a lot deeper into this character to to understand, and then the third, the third uh, is just bat poop crazy. Now, yeah. like I guess, like the best of these movies is the first, the like the kind of interestingly observed, you know, uh, social commentary about women in the workplace and sort of Diana versus uh, I, I forget the character's name. Um, Minerva. I mean, Minerva is one of her names. I don't even know. It's her last name, I guess. Yeah. The Kristen Wiig yeah. character. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and, and by the way, interesting, like that interesting performance from, from Kristen Wiig, the, the third movie, the bat poop crazy, uh, the bat poop insane part is probably my favorite because <laughs> <laughs> it has, Pedro Pascal standing. I mean, this is actually like, this is the performance capture technique of the Mandalorian where they just shoot in a completely simulated environment in like a 360 degree, like circle vision wrap around, you know, OLED screen thing that, that moves independently of the camera and like provides perspective and provides the environment. They call it the volume. They shoot within the volume. Um, it it reduces the volume to a, a single column of like purple or green light. 
and he stands within that column of purple or green light, his hair, papers whipping around him, his hair, you know, wildly flapping in the breeze, his clothes fluttering, and he shouts in every direction at the nothingness, like, uh, your wish is granted, your (laughs) wish is granted. And I thought... It was glorious. <laughs> now, now it has nothing. It is not connected to. Uh, it is not connected to anything having to do with the plot of the movie, with the themes or characters uh, of the film, with any other aspect of the film. But to behold, you know, uh, Eche Homo, you know, like <laughs> behold the man standing in the column of light, making ecstatic faces at nothing. <laughs> That's some Brendan Fraser quality work right there. <laughs> <That's>, it, was, <laughs> it was just... <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a good company with Christopher Lee, Count Dooku, right? With his tea party uh, at, yeah. with, <laughs> at the green screen puppets. <laughs> oh, man. It is a shame that Pedro Pascal is such a great Mandalorian because he would make a wonderful, like, effete dark Jedi. <laughs> like, <laughs> like a Sith, like a sort of backup Sith. You know, and it's like, ah, oh. I, I do feel like that's a little bit more of his real personality got to shine through in this movie. Yeah, I think that's at least right. Based on his interviews. Yeah, he's kind of a kooky dude and he has a great charisma and a kind of fearlessness, but also a kind of kookiness that uh, that you don't get to see in a lot of his parts that are very self-serious, um, even when they're having orgies in <laughs> whorehouses. <laughs> can, can I can I say though, and again, I, I love the silly movie too. I want to see the silly movie. I want to see the good movie. I probably also want to see the political movie. I just had difficulty following them all when they were all happening at the same time. And there wasn't a sort of elegant vocabulary of symbolism that connected them all to each other so that I could watch one thing happening and see how it related to all those things, right? Which is how you would do it if it were like a Justin Lin movie, right? It would be like, there would be like a kid standing alone in a crater. And then this person would be standing alone on a, on a, on a big circle. And then this person would be standing alone on a big circle and it would mean everything. Right. Um, and they would also be playing the beastie boys. But, uh, I will say that as much as I did like when this movie was silly, I do want to point out that this is a movie with a $200 million reported budget where there is a scene where Christy Wig has to go into a gym and lift a barbell over her head to show that she is strong. And so she does that and she drops it and it drops with a clank. And it's it's a $200 million movie. And instead of using metal weights, they used rubber weights and spray painted them silver because you could put more weight on the bar and it not be heavy, right? Like, and you can drop it and it won't break the floor, right? And so like- that was I was maybe I was the only one who was a, a little bit perturbed and offended by that. But that was like that was a real a real like, man, you know, they don't really care about the details at all. Like who is who is tracking the continuity in this movie? When did they shoot this scene? Did they just let Pete Davidson do it? Like what's going on? Um, <laughs> Pete, anyway. I, I may have an explanation. It's probably a 2019 OSHA workplace safety concern. They didn't even which have would have, which be the commercial gyms in the 80s. It's a, it's a no, that's what I'm saying. That's what, <laughs> yeah, like Yo, the, so the workplace like, safety thing for yeah. making it in 2019. Would have that's actually a really good point because because when she lifts that weight over her head, looking at it, it looked like it was about 215 pounds. But if those were metal plates, it would have been like 500 pounds or 600 pounds. Right. But they weren't. They were rubber plates. So but I guess they feel like the same thing most people feel when they get to do CrossFit, which is like, you know, you put the big plates on and that means you're strong. Right. It's like, oh, man, I got the big plates on now. This is great. And and I I don't begrudge people that. But like, uh, you know, it's uh, it is an experience. That's for sure. Yeah. I don't know if she wants to stay in that cat suit. She's got to do less weight, more reps, though. Look, man, it's about training with intensity. All right. It's like load, move that load over, over work over time. Uh, it's really about power. Really. When you're talking about being a, uh, a, uh, Uma Thurman poison Ivy, Michelle Pfeiffer, Catwoman hybrid, you know, you're really looking to do some high intensity interval training. It's, uh, you're, you're really, uh, when you're whipsawing tone back and forth across the, uh, your, your rotational core, uh, over the course of the, over the course of your endeavor. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Functional functional movements. That's uh, you know, (laughs) compound compound. uh. (laughs) 
Oh, before, before we wrap all this up here, we have to tie all this back together and point out that at the end of this movie, for uh, inexplicably, it's snowing in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, when, when it's like, you know, if you uh, meet us before, it was the 4th of July. Um, and it's totally a Hallmark Christmas movie. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like the, because, the soft yes. focus, and then yep. like you know the 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 guy shows up, and you know there's the the chemistry that sparks with the Christmas and the snow and everything. Hundred Hallmark. Look, Wonder Woman is just a woman who's really dedicated to her career, who had to leave behind her home, and she she will say that it's because of the work that she has to do that she she's so lonely. But but really, it's because of this wound that she carries with her from this loss that happened, both kind of in her family, but also in her interpersonal life. And uh, and I mean, really, all she needs to meet is like a six four, six five, recently appointed purveyor of a bed and breakfast with a daughter from a previous marriage that ended with her tragic death from consumption. And and I mean, and, and it, all she needs to do is kiss him precisely once, and everything's going to be okay, right? That's that's how it all shakes out. Um, man, yeah, was that movie really six months long? That you had Fourth of July and Christmas in the same movie? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, it was about two and a half hours, so you know, may may as well have been. All right, we got to leave it there. Uh, though I do like that we managed to tie it back using uh, using Hallmark Christmas movies because it did not tie back to its opening Quidditch scene. Um, it did not uh, <laughs> uh, really cash the check that it wrote uh, in yeah. that opening. In that opening sequence. All right. Well, uh, next week let's let's hope that Pixar's soul is uh, is maybe a, exactly the same in every respect. <laughs> let's hope. If <laughs> if we're lucky, Pixar's soul will be a shot for shot, shot. For shot remake of Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> ah, thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Pete and Mart, for podcasting with me. Thanks everyone who supported the uh, 2020 Holiday Movie Challenge. You can read those reviews as they come out this week on the web. Website. And uh, check out um, check out the TFT podcast if you, like me, have a cold black Grinch like heart, two sizes too small. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's just uh, <laughs> let's just leave it there. We'll be back with more overthinking and podcasts. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. The secret is finally the villain in a movie and we don't even talk about it. (laughs) Maybe the Celestine prophecy will be the villain in the next one.